Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Andrew. If we've not had a chance to meet, uh, I'm one of the ministers here, and it's my joy to bring uh, what is hopefully a message from Scripture that will remain with us even after we leave the building this morning. <clears throat> well, we're here today for one reason and one reason only, and that reason is King Jesus. We're celebrating his birthday today, and tomorrow on this holiday we call Christmas, which is simply, as you know, Spanish for more Jesus. In this, I didn't get a laugh at eight o'clock either. We'll just cut it from here on out. <laughs> is it because it's hard to see the accent mark on the A in Christmas? Is that probably what it is? <laughs> well, in this season, you've had uh, work parties, family gatherings, shopping in stores, shopping online, decorating your homes, decorating your workspaces and desks, and also viewing the must-watch Christmas movies of the year, which... Uh, only seems to get harder every year because there never seems to be enough time to get all the correct ones in, yes? So usually, at least as far as I'm concerned, they go for me, the absolute must-watch Christmas movies are, and these are in no special order, by the way, but I'm thinking uh, The Santa Claus, I'm thinking The Polar Express, I'm thinking Home Alone, It's a Wonderful Life, and most critically, and I'm using that word on purpose, most critically, A Muppet Christmas Carol. I don't know if any of you are in the same camp. Um, thank you, thank you, other millennials out there. Uh, I decided to watch this uh, a couple of nights ago after the kiddos went to bed, and my wife wanted to make sure that I didn't indeed want to watch A Muppet Christmas Carol with Audrey, our two-and-a-half-year-old, who would be seeing it for the first time, and I just said, I don't have any Muppet expectations for her this year, which I think has been my favorite sentence I've uttered all December, um, but I'm confident that next year Audrey will indeed be Muppet-ready. I take it seriously. As we do with so many traditions, Christmas is a time we take traditions seriously, and one of those traditions is making our way to a local church or our home church to sing Christmas hymns and to hear the nativity story, the Christmas story. That's Mary, that's Joseph, that's the baby Jesus in his manger, angels appearing to shepherds, wise men bringing gifts. We like the familiarity and comfort of a story that we've heard countless times before, and yet, at least every December, we have yet to grow tired of hearing it. Well, in my prep for this message for all of us and everyone else who will come uh, the rest of the day, uh, I was drawn to the, uh, I'll call them poetic words of my favorite author. His name is uh, Frederick Beekner. He passed away last year at the age of 96, which is plenty if you ask me. Uh, but he was an ordained minister right alongside being um, a prolific author. And I don't know if you're a reader like me, but if you're a reader, then you know that um, if you're lucky enough, then you might find a writer who, uh, I'll just say, speaks your heart language or just his words touch your soul like no one else's. If you're lucky, you found that author. Beekner seems to be that for me. But I want to revisit some words he had to say about Christmas some time ago. Beekner once said this in an interview. He said, it seems to me one of the miracles of the Christian faith is that the feast of Christmas survives what we have done to it. All the hoopla, claptrap, commercialism, and all the rest of it that I don't even need to go into because everybody knows what it is. Yet somehow, it does survive. This extraordinary moment when the whole year slows down and you point to this unimaginable event where God somehow became made flesh. What often occurs to me about Christmas is that if it is really true, if the word really became flesh, if the mystery behind all that really took the form of a human life, 
this vulnerable, tiny human life whose skull you could have crushed with one hand, then there must have been extraordinary anguish and intergalactic struggle to have this extraordinary thing come to pass. Well, from the Bible this morning, we will not disappoint in hearing about this extraordinary thing. We will tackle a precious scene together, but we will bring out some of the high-stakes drama that can easily be lost in telling the, uh, shall we say, G-rated Christmas stories we're more accustomed to. Well, revisiting what the kids read for us in the video, we'll start in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. You can follow along on the screen, or if you uh, have your Bible with you or your preferred Bible app, you can follow along there. Matthew, chapter 2, verse 1. I'll just read these first three verses. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So several months, at least several months after Jesus is born, wise men show up on Main Street in downtown Jerusalem wanting to know where this rumored baby king is as they really, really, really want to worship him. Now these wise men, they're also called magi. You've likely heard that before in the context of the story. And they are scholars from another kingdom. Most think it's somewhere in Arabia. And these guys, they're skilled in uh, mathematics and science and astronomy, astrology, and probably even um, in certain uh, occult practices. Uh, today, if we had an equivalent, we probably really don't have an equivalent of this today, but the closest we come is somewhere between a scientist and a professor with just a little side of witchcraft. Well, despite what nativity sets and paintings or storybooks or even your own memory when you read and hear this, whatever they've told us, we don't know exactly how many wise men there were. We like to think that there were three just because we know there are three gifts, so one guy holds each of those, but there could have been more. There could have been a couple. We just know they were plural, but Matthew simply doesn't tell us. Well, however many there were, they also probably didn't arrive each on their own donkey or camel. They likely arrived on Main Street with uh, an entourage of sorts or a huge caravan uh, with a large contingent of uh, servants and soldiers. These were important guys. Uh, they were wealthy and prestigious men, had a lot to travel with. Well, once again, these men genuinely want to worship King Jesus. But in verse 3 up here on the screen we see that King Herod and all of Jerusalem with him were deeply disturbed by their arrival. Why? I'd say because the 70-year-old King Herod has been the king of Judea for nearly 40 years, and even though he himself isn't Jewish, the Roman Empire, who he works for, once upon a time nicknamed him the king of the Jews. And I don't know how well you know your history or how well you know your Herod, but Herod is a deadly combination of insecure, unpredictable, and violent. To Herod, there's only room for one king of the Jews in this town, and it's going to remain him. And why is all of Jerusalem deeply disturbed right along with him? Probably because they know their king really well. They know his reputation, and they have no idea how he's going to react. The city is on edge. Well, first thing he does, King Herod first reacts by calling a meeting with Jewish religious experts. We'll pick up in verse 4. Just another few verses together. Verse 4. 
So he, King Herod, assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. For some time, there had been rumors of a powerful king a powerful rule going to be born somewhere in the Middle East area. No one really knew exactly where, well, except for these guys. But if you were Jewish, this rumored person was called the Messiah. And what that means is this was an anointed one, a set-apart one, a holy one. He was going to be a rescuer of Israel. Now again, King Herod is not Jewish, but he rules Jewish people, and his wife is actually Jewish. So it stands to reason that he would be well acquainted. He would have heard about this prophesied Messiah that would one day come. Well, when the wise men say why they're in town, Herod's ears perk up, and he calls in the chief priests and the scribes who can tell him all about the Messiah. They're the experts. He's calling the experts into the room. And they tell him the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, as that has been uh, prophesied for centuries uh, before. And I wonder if I'm Herod, are goosebumps uh, erupting on my skin, and is a chill going down Herod's spine as he recognized that Bethlehem is just five short miles south of Jerusalem where he is. Well, Herod has the location, and so he dismisses the chief priests and the scribes. And then he calls another meeting, verses 7 and 8. It says, Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Well, it seems, at least according to the Magi, these wise men, they've arrived at the, same, at the exact right time with the stars and God guiding them. Well, then King Herod sends them to what he has found out is the exact right place, that being Bethlehem. And Herod asks them to report back when they find the child because he wants to go and worship him too. This is a lie. All King Herod wants to do is kill this baby boy. Now, we will not cover it this morning together, but if you read the entirety of Matthew chapter 2, then you can read about the links of great evil that Herod went to in order to try to ensure this happened. He was not successful. Well, let's now shift our focus away from Herod and on uh, to these wise men. Verse 9, all the way through 12, end of our passage this morning. Verse 9, after hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Well, through God's voice and guidance, again, he's pulling the strings, he's making this happen. Through God's voice and guidance, the wise men make their way to Mary and Joseph's house. And you'll notice there was no mention of a manger, no mention of an inn or an innkeeper. So while it can be difficult to pick up on the exact amount of time that uh, has passed since Jesus was born, 
Um, at this point, Jesus could be anywhere from several months to actually nearly two years old once the wise men get there. And Mary and Joseph, they have a new house, and it seems that they've made their permanent address here in Bethlehem, at least for a short time. Well, going on the scene, this mighty eye-catching uh, caravan with an entourage pulls up in front of the house, and these three men come to worship. And they bring gifts. And I think it's important for us to know that in bringing their gifts, this was not in addition to their worship. This is how they decided to show their worship to this new baby king. This was an expression of their worship. And they give him gold, they give him frankincense, and they give him myrrh. Now, if you're interested in this, I certainly am. Just it's like, why these gifts? Why were these such a big deal? Is there anything special meaning behind this? There is. Uh, gold, it was this universal symbol of material wealth and value. And it was also a, a uh, symbol of nobility and royalty. That's what the gold communicates. A fitting gift for a king. Well, then frankincense was this very costly incense that was used only for the most special of occasions and many associated with the very idea of divinity or even God himself. And then myrrh, it was also valuable, not quite as big of a deal as frankincense, but it was this perfume that could also be used in certain oils, certain medicines. It's associated with and symbolic of humanity, which I learned this year. Royal, divine, Human. Not a bad place to start as far as trying to grasp exactly who Jesus is. We're here because of one reason and one reason only, and that is King Jesus. However, in these 12 verses of Matthew 2, we don't see everyone treating Jesus like a king. In fact, we see some of the same responses to Jesus in Matthew 2 as we do today in late 2023. So let's talk about this. Starting with King Herod. Now, King Herod may have believed that Jesus was a newly born king, but his response was to try to kill him, to snuff out that life. Herod was hostile toward King Jesus. We read, and it was clear, to Herod, there was no room for another king to exist while he was still around. Herod was against Jesus. First of a few questions for us this morning. Are you against Jesus? Now, that's not to say that you would wish anyone dead. That's not to say that you would wish violence or hate on anybody. But are you against Jesus in that you're in a part of your life where you are pushing against the very idea of a loving God wanting a saving relationship with you? Have you been consistently ignoring or turning your back to what you suspect is God trying, maybe even desperately so, to get your attention? Are you in a season, are you in a part of life that you've just become so consumed with yourself and what you have going on that there's simply no room for God to enter in? Or maybe you're like the chief priests and the scribes who honestly just get a, just a very short, barely a mention in verse 4, but they are part of this story. See, these chief priests and scribes, these Jewish men, these experts, they had the knowledge about Jesus. They were in temple or church all the time. Herod calls his meeting, and then when they were called, they were quizzed by King Herod on their Bible knowledge. And you know what? They delivered. They passed. They got an A-plus on their Bible quiz. What's the answer? Bethlehem. Good. They got it. 
Now these guys, especially since the wise men arrived in downtown Jerusalem, these guys would have heard the, the muttering. They may have even been asked by these guys where, this guy, where Jesus is supposed to be born. These chief priests and scribes, they would have known why the wise men were in town. Especially and since they knew that the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. However, even though they knew all that, that they were so close to this, there's no indication that they followed the wise men there or even that they visited Jesus themselves at another time. Jesus was only five miles away. That is not that far. Yet they were seemingly indifferent to Jesus. So a question for you, has, have you found yourself indifferent to Jesus? Maybe it's been a long time since you've had a spiritual experience with him. Or maybe as you look back on your year, it's that time of year, by the way, as it's wrapping up, as you look back on your year, you realize you weren't in church nearly as often as you had hoped to be this year. Or maybe you still absolutely consider Jesus your Savior, but he stopped being Lord a while ago. In fact, you can't remember the last time Jesus had a say on much of any of your decisions. A question to think on is, are you purposely keeping Jesus at a distance, close enough to where you can keep an eye on him, where he feels close by, but far enough where you still get to be in charge of everything? Or maybe you're like one of the wise men, and you are actively seeking after Jesus and worshiping him. There are a few really interesting things about these guys, at least that I found about them. Uh, for one, these guys coming from Arabia or thereabouts, they weren't Jewish, and they likely weren't all that familiar with the culture that Jesus was born into. After all, these guys, they're from an entirely different kingdom, and they have their own sets of beliefs and practices and what they're into. And yet, of all the people in the world, of all the different types of people that he could tap on the shoulder, God appears to these men in a dream and says, get to Jerusalem, and he uses stars and signs in the skies to guide them to the just right place. This is really encouraging to me because it communicates that God loves everyone and wants a relationship with everyone regardless of their background. These wise men, they did not know God, but yet God chooses them and speaks to them and guides them in a way that makes sense to them. God doesn't get the attention of everybody in the exact same way. For these guys, he used uh, signs in the sky. He used astronomy and dreams, things that they would understand. God will likely use something different for you. But when they get to Jerusalem again, downtown Main Street, Jerusalem, the original Greek language has, us, has them saying that they kept on asking the question, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? They didn't ask just once. They kept on asking, probably everyone that they saw, because they needed to know the answer. They were asking everyone, and they were eager and excited to worship. That comes through in their keep on asking. Their hearts were searching. And it reminds me of this verse and back in Jeremiah, an Old Testament prophet and book that I think could apply to all of us. Verse 13 of Jeremiah 25 reads, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. We see this from the wise men. And the interesting thing is, or just one of many, is these guys even had a background in witchcraft and the occult, and yet God still chose them and honored their genuine seeking hearts. Well, they get to the house and they fall on their knees in adoration and worship of Jesus. And then God warns them once again in a dream to get out of town and do not report back to King Herod under any circumstances. 
And by the way, had they been caught leaving town, likely in the dead of night, they very well may have been killed or imprisoned. It's just the kind of guy that Herod is. Well, we don't hear any more about the wise men after they worshipped and after they left their gifts. And I had some questions about this. I had some wonderings. I wondered, did they keep tabs on what was going on in Jerusalem over the next several years? Or did they keep their ears open for a young boy to grow up and rescue people from their sins? Were they keeping an ear open for that story to come out of Jerusalem and Israel? Well, we don't know. All we do know and all we do have from these guys is their example and how to respond to King Jesus. So in a world where we can be opposed to or indifferent toward God, we can be like them and choose to seek after him and worship him. If I say or use the word Advent, you've likely heard that before, and maybe you even have an Advent calendar at home. Who has an Advent calendar on a wall or something? Show of hands. I know it's more than three of us, but I get it. I get it. It's, it's somewhat early. <clears throat> well, we have a few Advent calendars at our house. Um, our oldest, um, you know, two and a half, she has her very first Advent calendar. It's a chocolate one, and so there's obviously an excitement that comes with new every new day. She wants to know, he wants that chocolate egg. Where's that chocolate egg? Well, and then my wife has a, get this, a cheese Advent calendar. I didn't know these were out there, but they are. Looks something like that. Uh, And she's been graciously sharing the cheese with me with each day. Well, I nearly got in trouble a couple of weeks ago when I made a move toward the refrigerator on New Cheese Day. As I opened the refrigerator, my wife, like, not yells, because she's not much of a yeller, but, like, emphatically, no, which is, again, very surprising from her. She says, don't. I'm like, hey, I'm not going to... I'm not going to eat all of today's cheese. Like, I know the system. We break it in half and we share, like always. And she says, no, I want to be the one who pokes through and opens the little door that the cheese is behind. That's the best part. Which is really confusing to me because I thought the part where I eat cheese is the best part of the cheese advent calendar. These advent calendars, though they bring excitement, largely miss the point of the real reason for Advent. Advent means arrival or a coming of someone. And in Christianity, it's the season in which we expectantly, excitedly, urgently await the arrival of Jesus. Well, today is the last day of Advent, and we celebrate the arrival of Jesus tomorrow on Christmas Day. The wise men brought gifts. Tomorrow we'll uh, give and receive gifts, maybe just like we have under this tree up here. But even with those joys, I've heard it said that we cannot outgive God. His generosity is unmatched. Let me read this to you. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God, out of his love, has given us his greatest gift that by trusting in Jesus, we might not perish for eternity, but have life for eternity. And it falls on each one of us to respond by refusing Jesus, by being indifferent or apathetic toward Jesus, or by worshiping and following Jesus. Well, in that spirit, we're now going to observe this uh, time of communion. If you haven't made your way back, they're in the back of the room. Um, I found like whenever someone's praying, that's the time to make your break and get a replacement, so you can do that when the time comes. 
Uh, but this is something that Jesus himself instituted, and it's a time to uh, probably do a few things. You can privately worship, you can reflect, you can respond, you can pray. But to help us get there, I want to invite my friend Frederick Beekner back as I read this Christmas Eve story from his life. Try and imagine this, you know, recall in your mind's eye as I read Beekner's words. He wrote, One Christmas Eve, exhausted, about to go to bed, having put all the presents under the tree, I remembered that our neighbor had asked us to feed his sheep every day he was gone. The snow was falling. This was in Vermont. My brother and I went down the hill to feed the sheep. We went into the barn and we got the bales of hay. We took them out into the sheep shed, cut the string, turned on the 40-watt bulb, and began scattering the hay. The sheep came bumbling up, getting close to it. With the smell of the hay, the smell of the sheep, and the snow coming down, all of a sudden I realized where I was. I was in the manger, and I almost missed it. I happened to see it. It seems to me that in a way you could say that the world itself is a manger where God is continually being born into our lives, into the things that happen to us. Most of the time, if you're like me, you are looking the other way. Church, let us not look the other way. Pray with me. Father, I ask your very best blessing on everyone gathered in this room. I pray that exact same blessing on those who are joining us, watching via live stream. Father, you have a son who demands a response from us. And I believe that within every one of us, there is a craving, there is a longing to be in a relationship with you. And some of us have found that and some of us are still searching. I pray that our searching is met. That we can put your name to our longing and because of that, you will draw near. You will make yourself evident. But I also pray through your spirit that whatever it is we need to reckon with, come to terms with as far as how are we living have we been consistently shoving you off to the side? And if so, help us to stop and to know and feel your love. Just as much, I pray that we are not indifferent or apathetic, that we would know there's nothing more valuable than your son, Jesus. And if we find ourselves seeking after and worshiping King Jesus, then give us joy all the more. In his name, we all pray together. Amen. You may take the cup.